Epiphany Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. On Friday a thief, on Sunday a king, laid down in grief, but I woke with the key to hell on that day, the firstborn of the slain, the man Jesus Christ laid. Welcome to Epiphany's Sunday Sermons, a podcast ministry of Epiphany Anglican Fellowship in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Our church exists to help people discover and rediscover the love of God in the Christian gospel. To learn more about our church, visit our website at epiphanyligonier.org. I want to begin with a personal story this morning about um, a, a great prize my family won. Uh, we were shopping at Sam's Club, it was probably 1995, and uh, the security system company ADT had a table out, and they said, hey, if you fill out your name and put it in the bowl, you could win a free security system for your house. Now, looking back as a, a grown adult at the time, uh, I thought, wow, a free security system, but you know how it is. They give you the security system, but they get you with the monthly you know, payments. But at the time, this was all new to us, right? Security systems were new and fun in 1995. And so my sister, un, um, unknowing to my parents, uh, jotted down with her like elementary school handwriting my parents' name and phone number and dropped it in the fishbowl. And a week later, we got a call. You've won a free security system. It was great. They, they came and they put little doodads on our windows, so if they opened it up, it would set off the alarm. And we had a family meeting and talked about the emergency code. So if the company calls, you give them the emergency code so that they know, you know everything's safe and everything's fine and don't tell anyone the emergency code. We had this whole thing with our family. We we're so excited to get a security system. And one night, we left a, a door unlocked and the wind blew it open and the alarm went off and we all jumped up and we're running around and it was a whole big deal. Um, really nothing happened for, you know, as long as we were there. For like 20 years, nothing happened. And so, of course, what happened? We stopped turning the alarm on every night. We said, oh, nothing's happening. You know, we're in a safe neighborhood. We don't need this. And time went by, and I grew up, and I went off to college and went off to seminary. And it was my second year of seminary when my mother, um, in January, my mother called me in a panic. And she said, Brian, um, I just want to let you know our house has been broken into. And uh, in the middle of the night, um, a couple of uh, uh, sort of unscrupulous men opened a window and climbed through and made off with a whole bunch of things and uh, took my mother's car keys and put it all in my mother's car and drove off. And um, well, they found the car later that day, crashed into a GameStop in downtown Richmond. It was a whole thing. And um, it really shook my family up. But to this day, right, this is probably about a decade and a half ago, they type in the security numbers on the, the, the pad, right? They turn on their security system now, and they keep up their payments, and they keep the alarm system in good shape because they know, okay, well, we thought we were invincible, but now we're not. Um, As we get into our reading today from Exodus, keep this theme of safety on your mind because safety is very important. It's one of the most important things, in fact, and last week we were coming off of a a three-part back-to-back part of Exodus where God has to sort of prove to the grumbling Israelites that God's going to provide them for everything they need. So remember three weeks ago, we looked at uh, God making the bitter water sweet. And then two weeks ago, we looked at uh, manna coming from heaven and and quail. 
And then uh, last week we looked at the third of these in a row, which was um, the, the water from the rock. These are all stories in Exodus where God is providing that which Israel needs to live a nomadic life in the desert now that they have escaped the clutches of wicked Pharaoh. Um, and, and the people of Israel have a lot of trouble trusting God, right? That's part of what we find. The pattern is Israel needs something key to their life and survival. They take the sort of fear that comes from that, transform it to anger, and take it to Moses. Then Moses takes it heavenward and prays about it, and then God provides for this grumbling, angry, fearful people. And that's the pattern. Three weeks our pattern looks like that, but there's one more thing that needs to be addressed in our reading, um, and that is the question of safety. Because now that they have food and they have water and they're making their way through the desert, escaping uh, Egypt, heading to Mount Sinai to do some business with God, um, we have a problem because they're not the only people out there in the wilderness. They're not the only nomadic tribe. There are plenty of others who are, feel like they're competing for scarce resources in the desert. And so today we find one of those other tribal leaders, a man named Amalek, um, begins to attack Israel to keep them away and to say, no, you may not have what is mine. Uh, and so that's where we're going to get at today, this question of safety, God providing safety. Um, because, yes, God can provide food and water and everything else, but today God's going to provide safety. That's what we're going to talk about in our reading. So let's dive in. Let's talk about the God who provides safety. Then Amalek, this is uh, in your bulletins in our Exodus reading, then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So, Mo so Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Now, you know, sometimes there are other parts of the Bible that comment on each other. So this is not the only story we have about this particular incident. Um, towards the end of his life, Moses is going to reflect back on this incident and explain a little bit more about what's going on. And this happens in Deuteronomy chapter 25. Not in your bulletin, but I will fill you in. Here's what Moses says. Remember what Amalek did to you on the, as, on the way as you came out of Egypt. How he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. So we have some context. You know, it's not just at, at this out-of-the-blue attack, right? Because when you have a nomadic lifestyle, right, you're traveling through the wilderness, who is at the front and who's at the back? Uh, the front are the strong people, the healthy people, the people who can keep the pace, the people at the rear are going to be your elderly and your children, people who are sick, people who are wounded. The rear of the caravan is where your slower animals are, your bigger animals. And so you might have some guards back there, but really you're trying to hold everyone together. Your weak and your weary and your sick are going to be the ones who trail towards the back. And so what the Bible is trying to tell us here, it's not just that Amalek came out of nowhere and started attacking He's actively raiding and fighting against the tail of this caravan, the back end, the part with the weakest and the frailest. It's not a good thing. Not a good thing. There's no attempt at diplomacy. There's no attempt to say, hey, stay out of our land. There's nothing. There's just a direct attack at the weakest and most vulnerable in the caravan. 
And so Israel stops the caravan, they muster up fighting men, and they march to battle. And the battle, of course, is overseen by a man named Joshua. Very important Bible character. This is the first time we meet him. Joshua is Moses' sort of aide-de-camp. He's the right-hand man, as it were, to, um, to Moses. And so Moses says to Joshua, go get the fighting men together. We're going to have to go and, and, and deal with this situation. Um, and so Moses says, we're done with this raiding at our tail. Let's fight this out. We're just going to punch them in the teeth, have a big battle. We're going to incapacitate them, and then we're going to get over with, and we're going to move on. And that's what Moses wants to do. And so Moses and his brother Aaron, during this battle, and Aaron's assistant by the name of Hur, his aide-de-camp, as it were, they all go to the top of a nearby hill, and while the army is fighting below, they can kind of see how things are going, direct things from that upper vantage point, sort of as generals, communicate and say, fight this way, fight that way. Um, But Moses, of course, has in his hand a very important item, which is the staff that he led the people with out of Egypt. Um, This is the staff that turned into the snake in front of Pharaoh. This is a staff that God sort of anointed and said, keep the staff. This is a very special item of God's providence and blessing. Moses has it in his hand. And he's holding it up, and and, and here's what the scripture says. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. Whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side, the other on the other side. And so his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. So what's the significance of hands in the air? What's, what's going on? What is hands in the air? He's got the staff, his hands are in the air, right? He's holding it up. Um, and, and from all over the Bible, when you have hands in the air like this, uh, it's not just sort of, you know, um, waving in the airplane, right? It's not a field goal. It's actually prayer. Um, that one of the postures of prayer that the people of the Bible often describe is um, that people will lift their hands in prayer. And that's what most scholars think is happening here. But some other Bible examples, Psalm 63, there's a line that says, So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. And Paul says in his, one of his letters to Timothy, he says that I desire that in every place men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. And so there's a sense where Moses, yes, he's holding up, he's displaying this sort of icon of God's providence and rescue against wicked people, um, but there's a posture of prayer happening as well. He, Moses is not just directing traffic, he's praying as a part of this um, military endeavor. And of course, as the battle goes on, his hands get weary, right? His hands get weary. He's having trouble keeping his hands up. And so apparently, like what the text is trying to tell us is whenever Moses stopped praying, right, with his hands up, whenever he stopped praying, um, things went Amalek's way. But whenever he continued to pray, things went Joshua's way. So this is not just a text about tired hands. It's a text about prayer. And so we get this really goofy moment, right, when Moses is so tired of keeping his hands up in the air that his Aaron, his brother, and the assistant come over, and they pull up a a rock as a chair, right, and they set him down in it, and they just hold his hands up for him so he can keep doing what he's doing. It's meant to be sort of a little goofy and a little silly, right, Um, that this is the answer. We're saying, okay, we're just going to hold your hands up because you're exhausted, Moses, because you've been doing this all day. And um, you need a hand. 
Like, uh, so when I do communion, right, sometimes you'll see me with my hands up like this, right? Um, that's prayer. That's a prayer position. Like, imagine I'm just so tired one Sunday morning. I'm like, can I get two volunteers just to hold up my hands like this in prayer, right, for the remainder of the service? And can I, like, say communion prayer sitting down? I don't think I'll ever need that. But maybe if I do, I'll just reference this story and you can help me out. Um, but, but what happens is, is between the prayers of Moses and the assistance that Moses gets and Joshua's leadership and the fighting force of Israel, and most of all, on top of it all, God's sort of merciful providence in this big battle, um, there is victory. Amalek is defeated, and um, God uh, gets all the credit for it, as he should. And that's what happens in our reading today, uh, as Moses leads the people and organizes a fight against Amalek. So a few thoughts from this passage this morning, some things you can put in your pocket to take with you. I think this passage has something to say about leadership. Um, Because one of the key themes in this part of the Bible, we're going to continue to see this over and over again, is that Moses is just one guy and he can't do it all on his own. We're going to find a couple of passages specifically that deal with this in a couple weeks as we continue to go through Moses' story in Exodus here. Um, But but the reality is is he needs help. Um, He genuinely needs help to get through things. He can't do it on his own. Um, Moses is going to continue to be sort of exhausted and burnt out and frustrated. Um, he's going to sort of get just as angry in some senses as God um, at, at the way that Israel sort of responds to the, the hardship of the time. And yet, um, Moses is going to have to get some help. And so this is an example of that, right? To quote the Beatles, he got by with a little help from his friends. Uh, to quote you too, you know, sometimes you can't make it on your own. And so this is a story about not just, I guess, leaderships in, in general, but also us in specific. We weren't meant to do this alone, um, this being our life's pilgrimage. We weren't meant to be alone. We all need help. That's the first thing to put in your pocket. Another thing, second thing to take away, is this is a passage about, again, God providing everything, the providence of God in every situation. Um, right? It's, it, before in our earlier chapters, it was food and it was water, it was meat, Now it's safety and security because Israel is wandering out into the desert. It's not like they have a standing army. They have to go sort of just get a militia together with all the fighting men. They're they're coming out. They're new to this nomadic lifestyle after living all of their life in Egypt. So they're particularly vulnerable to this sort of attack from someone like Amalek, who's lived this whole nomad lifestyle his whole life and um, knows the region, knows the space, Um, This is really, um, they're they're quite vulnerable. And so God is actively at work intervening for Israel's safety, um, uh, even in this sort of regional geopolitical conflict. Um, Israel wins the fight so that God can show them that even when things are dangerous, he's in charge and he's in control. In fact, God is really concerned about this uh, Amalek character. Uh, And just a preview of what's coming ahead, if you keep reading the Bible, um, this Amalek character becomes a a theme throughout the Bible, um, through the rest of the Old Testament. Um, Amalek is the guy's name. You may run into occasionally in your Bible reading a group called the Amalekites. Amalek, the Amalekites. And again, things keep going, and and there's this reference back to this um, particular moment where um, God sort of says, everything that's wrong with the world is embodied in this group called the Amalekites. They attack the weak and the vulnerable. They're, they're, they're dishonest. Um, early rabbis, early rabbis uh, tried to translate the Amalekites. I don't think they were right, but 
they, they said that the, the name, the, the people Amalekite is something to the effect translated into the, the, the Semitic language of the people who lick blood. Right? Um, but they were bloodthirsty people who reveled in conflict and killing and hurting other people and getting them at their weakest. And so um, if you go throughout the rest of the Bible, you'll see that God has a special sort of thing, a craw on God's side for this particular culture and this particular people. In fact, um, King Saul, right? King Saul, this is way later in the Bible when Israel establishes a monarchy. King Saul is given a direct commandment by God. And God says, listen, the Amalekites, we need to blot them out. We need to destroy them because their culture, their way of life is just so abhorrent to the peace and serenity of this world. Uh, look, remember what they did to you back in, in, in Moses' day. So uh, Saul, I want you to lead an army and go sort of blot them out. And don't even take their livestock as captive. We're going to slaughter all their livestock. Don't even take their gold. We're going to you know, melt all their gold down, and, 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 and we're not even going to take that. Like, uh, Just get rid of all of it. Just burn it all to the ground because it's such a dangerous culture and lifestyle. We can't let it thrive. And Saul makes an attempt and does not listen to God. He doesn't get rid of the livestock and the the gold and all that sort of stuff, and God gets really mad at him. But King David comes next in that lineage, and King David does uh, sort of beat the tar out of the Amalekites. And when he does so, you really don't hear about the Amalekites again in the Bible. Um, The only other time you hear about the Amalekites, fun little Bible trivia, is in the book of Esther of all places. Again, way further, like after the monarchy, after Israel gets caught up and taken into the Babylonian uh, captivity. Um, That Esther... In the book of Esther, there's a really bad dude, and this guy's name is Haman. And Haman, this really bad dude, is plotting for this massive sort of uh, pre-Nazi holocaust of the Jewish people. He says to the the emperor of of Babylon, he says, or Persia, he says, the Jewish people don't worship you as king, you should kill them all. And the king says, yeah, you're probably right, maybe I should. Um, And that guy, Haman, like one of the baddest bad dudes of the Old Testament, um, the, the scripture says he's a descendant of Amalek. And so there's a sense here in which the, the Amalekites, God actually cares genuinely and deeply about things like safety and security and this culture, which is just violent and quick to kill. God says, no, we can't have that. We need to get rid of that. Which is to say that things like uh, violence and justice matter to God. And we weren't meant to live in a world with war and blood. That wasn't the intention. But until Jesus returns and rights all the wrongs, um, the use of violence to restrain violent men is something that God is okay with. Um, and he wants there to be peace and safety and security. God cares about all of these things. And he provides that along with food and water and shelter. And so God provides safety from whatever sort of that strain of thought that invaded the spirit of the Amalekites. God wants to get rid of that. And he will go to violent ends to do so. So that's the second thing. God cares about your security. God cares. uh, You're not supposed to make it on your own. God cares about your security. And third thing is, this is a passage about prayer. Um, Moses models for us the power of prayer, how important it is, um, why we don't stop praying, how God delights when we bring him the needs of our hearts, especially in these big matters like this, right? Um, over in Proverbs, there's a pearl of wisdom that Solomon says where he says, we prepare the chariots for battle, but victory is the Lord's. I love that, right? We prepare the chariots for battle, uh, but victory is the Lord's because it recognizes without God's direct intervention in these big, hairy geopolitical matters, 
Um, right? God cares about the food and the water and these little things, but also the big things. And you can take them to him in prayer, and God welcomes that. Um, think about it this way, right? It is ultimately God who controls the weather um, that makes the harvest that produce the crops that you eat. Um, it is God who then takes some of those crops, right, that we do, and we grow them and then grind them down and feed them to our livestock, so there's meat and milk and eggs. It is God who had plants uh, grown, you know, a million years ago that decomposed into the ground and eventually became um, oil, which was then extracted and we refined it to petroleum so that we could power our cars to get to the grocery store to buy the milk and the eggs and produce that we take home. And so every single ounce of our lives is in some way um, prefaced uh, by the grace of God working before us. And so we go to him in prayer because he's ultimately in control of all of it. And so this is a passage about prayer, that that we weren't meant to do things alone. Um, Everyone, including our leaders, needs help. Prayer is powerful and God provides in every circumstance. Now I'll leave you with one final thought as we close. One of the most common themes that New Testament Christians uh, embrace is to say that Jesus is like a new but different Moses. It's an interesting thing. The early Christians said, um, hey, Jesus and Moses have a lot in common. They're not the same, but they have a lot in common, right? The two great rescuing stories of the Bible is the exodus out of Egypt, the rescuing of the people of slavery, that very literal parting of the Red Sea where people are brought out of slavery, and the other one is Jesus' death and resurrection, which frees from a more spiritual cosmic slavery and through baptism pulls us to the other side um, where we live a life under God's care and providence. There's a lot of similarities there, but there's also a lot of difference. And so the New Testament will say things like, hey, we have a Passover through Moses. Jesus' death and resurrection is a new Passover. We celebrate something that's like that, but bigger and better. And the early Christians will say things like, um, like in the Gospel of John, for example, John writes, um, the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus. So they're overlapping figures of redemption, but there are some differences. I think it's worth our time to compare these, the visions here of two different redeemers, right? Two different leaders, two different Bible characters whose arms at one point were both outstretched. And so imagine in your head, right, Moses standing on the, on the hilltop, his arms outstretched, holding the staff used to challenge Pharaoh, right? Imagine that image, hands up, holy prayer, holding the staff, asking God's blessing, but then he gets tired. And so he gets help. He sits down and two people come alongside and, and hold up his arms. Do you have that image in your mind's eye, right? Now imagine the crucified Jesus whose arms were also outstretched and lifted up but the situation could not have been more different. Um, that Jesus, of course, crucified on the cross. Moses has victory, but Jesus willingly embraces defeat. And unlike Moses, there's no help for Jesus. Jesus does this one on his own. Moses, when he's exhausted and when he's, 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 um, he can't keep going, he gets to sit and get help. But Christ is nailed into his outstretched position There is no help for him. There is no rest or seat for Jesus. Um, Moses takes upon himself this posture of prayer, right? But he has help. There is a seat and rest for him. Nothing like that for Jesus, right? Moses is praying for the defeat of his enemies and the safety of his people. 
but Jesus is praying for his enemies to be forgiven at the expense of his own safety. So you can see there are, some, there are significant parallels here uh, between the two of them. But the big difference is, of course, that yes, God provides. And he provides in both circumstances. Food, water, sh- uh, safety. But humans need more than that. They do. Humans need things like forgiveness of their sins. Um, redemption from slavery of, of the spirit. Freedom from the malevolent forces of hell. Right? Human beings need a community of people to support each other through this life's pilgrimage. Um, right? Human beings need insights into how the moral framework of the universe is. We need to be told what is ultimately good and right and true. Right? We need a full sense of meaning and purpose. We need to be spared from sin and death. We need reconciliation with heaven itself. And so we need the total annihilation and defeat, not of the Amalekites, but of sin and death and the devil. That's what we really need, ultimately. Um, Jesus says, right, what does he say? He says, um, uh, uh, there's more to life than, than bread, right? He says, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and, and he calls himself the living water. He who comes to me shall not thirst. So even as we look at these basic ways in which God provides food and water and security for the people of Israel in the desert, Jesus provides ultimately uh, so much more, and he does so at his own expense. Um, that it, On the cross, as Jesus dies and rises again, it is the ultimate self-giving love of God to people who don't have what they need to live. And Jesus says, I will give it to you at my own expense. To quote the old hymn, all, uh, all I have needed what thy hand hath provided. It's a very accurate sentiment. So what do you need this morning? What do you need this morning? Now that's kind of a cheeky question, uh, but that's not really mysterious when you think about it, right? What do you need this morning? Well, you need food and water and shelter and safety. Um, you need clothes and money and transportation. But you also need love and belonging and meaning. You need deliverance from your sins. You need hope and forgiveness and peace. And the same way that God provides all of those things to the Israelites wandering in the wilderness, God will provide them for you as well. The the Amaleks of this world will not have their way. Neither will our own grumbling for that matter, right? And that's the core meaning of this section of Exodus and the grace's message of the gospel. God gives you everything you need at Jesus' expense and does so full of love and fully willing. In Jesus' name, amen. On Friday a thief, on Sunday a king, lay down in green, broke with the keys, fell on that day, firstborn of the slain, the man Jesus Christ. Ligonier, Pennsylvania.